live from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Volatility reigns. U.S. stocks fall as the CDC warns the United States needs to prepare for the coronavirus. Helicopter money. The Hong Kong government announces a raft of measures, including cash giveaways to support the economy and a fairy tale farewell. Disney's Bob Iger steps down. Bob Chapek steps up. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move on another day of fast developments in the global coronavirus crisis and, of course, some developments in stock markets to pressure volatility on global markets. Let me bring you up to speed with what we're seeing at this moment. I can tell you U.S. futures are now solidly higher. They flipped from being deeply negative just a couple of hours ago. This kind of pattern and sentiment isn't so surprising after one of the worst two-day drops on Wall Street in years. The Dow and the S&P have both fallen some 3% in each of the past two trading sessions. It was all not helped by a warning from the CDC here in the United States yesterday saying that coronavirus will likely come to the U.S. and authorities, like schools, need to be thinking about how they prepare. The result, all three major markets close to falling some 10% from their most recent highs. That's the classic definition that we use for a correction. Beneath the surface, some 64% of S&P 500 stocks are already in correction territory, including firms like Apple and MasterCard. Both have warned about the coronavirus risks just in the past week. We also saw pressure, too, on Asian stocks. The Shanghai Composite, you can see that falling from 0.8%. But I will tell you what we're seeing in the European session has been equities trying to claw their way back from earlier losses. They are in the red at the moment, but just tilted, as you can see, to the downside. It's not just stocks, though. The sell-off in oil continues to. Brent crude falling through $55 a barrel. U.S. crude below $50 too. Bond yields, however, firming up slightly here after falling to record lows yesterday. Yields dropping, of course, as investors bet on fresh stimulus. We're talking fresh rate cuts here from the Federal Reserve. The bottom line here is, guys, uncertainty is what's driving these markets. Let's get to the drivers, because I do want to bring you up to speed with what we're seeing with regards to the coronavirus outbreak. President Trump has announced a press conference later today on the coronavirus outbreak. This, of course, as global health authorities scramble to contain the outbreaks outside of China. In South Korea, the number of people infected with coronavirus continues to soar. Twelve people now officially confirmed dead. A U.S. soldier stationed in the country has also tested positive. Iran, meanwhile, the worst nation hit in the Middle East. 19 deaths have now been reported there, and there's concern that thousands of cases may have gone undetected. Meanwhile, in Europe, they're working to contain the outbreak in Italy too. 12 deaths have been reported there. France also reporting its first fatality just a short while ago, not wanting to detract from that crisis and, of course, the humanitarian impact that it's had. But the uncertainty has at the same time wiped $3.3 trillion in value 
from global markets. Claire Sebastian joins us on this. Claire, again, I want to reiterate, we don't want to take away from the humanitarian impact that this crisis is having. But at the same time, I think investors trying to gauge what the economic impact is going to be. And it's tough to gauge how you reflect that risks in terms of the level here for, for markets, not just in the United States, of course, but globally. Yeah, Julia, I think it's interesting because in actual fact, if you look at the headlines that we've had overnight, things have got worse in terms of the spread of this virus. But we're seeing a bit of a, of a, of a bounce in the pre-market action this morning on the markets. And that really suggests that, that despite these negative headlines, despite the fact that the virus continues to spread, despite the warnings in the U.S. from the Centers for Disease Control, uh, that, that there are those out there who still believe this will be a V-shaped recovery, that some of the demand lost will be recaptured. Uh, but in terms of how you assess the risk, here. I think it's critical to look at what some of the companies are saying because it's very clear now that this has been going on for long enough that wait and see just isn't good enough for some companies. The airlines are a critical case in point here. We've heard this morning uh, from Lufthansa and Air France KLM. Both of them are, are actually Air France KLM. The stock is now up today, but the, both of them are uh, aggressively cost-cutting in the face of this. Lufthansa saying uh, that it's reassessing new hires. It's offering employees unpaid leave, cutting budgets in administrative areas. Air France KLM saying uh, that impact on revenues will be very significant, and it's urging people to only do must-do expenditure. That was a letter from the CFO this morning. So companies are increasingly concerned, but I think the markets sort of after the last two days of losses are approaching a technical level where people are thinking we might see a little bit of a bounce, but perhaps not the end of the volatility around this. Yeah, you raise a great point. We've moved a long way to the downside in just a very short space of time. So consolidation perhaps makes sense at this stage. It's tough to gauge the part where we say where next. I think the messaging here is also very important. I mentioned the, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, saying, look, in the United States, schools, businesses need to be thinking about seeing greater clusters of coronavirus in this country and need to prepare. At the same time, the message from the White House has been, look, this is under control. Even Larry Kudlow coming out yesterday and saying investors should be buying the dips here. We don't want to incite panic. These are relatively small numbers at this stage, but the uncertainty is great. The mixed messaging isn't helping. And I think equally unhelpful, Julia, is, is, you know, we've got reporting from our White House team that this is an example of what we've seen repeatedly from the president, that, that it's sort of a feedback loop with the markets. He is playing this down because he's worried about the market falls based on that rather than facts around the virus itself. And that sort of sets up the view that, that the administration might be unprepared and further sort of, uh, you know, exacerbates the confusion around this, given the warnings that we're getting from the CDC. And the fact remains that, you know, you talk to, to a lot of market experts, you have on the show. I've spoken to some who say this isn't just about the coronavirus. It could have been anything. The market was so overbought, was so complacent around this. Don't forget, it was just one week ago today that the S&P 500 hit a record high. So uh, it, this was a very frothy market. So I think it was very vulnerable to any kind of shock. It just so happened that it, that it was this virus. But, but obviously the, the calculus changes if yeah. you start to see economic growth really tank around the world. It's exactly what Peter Oppenheimer was saying to us yesterday 
yesterday, just taking some of the complacency out of these markets is, is healthy at this stage, that the tragedy of coronavirus uh, aside. Claire Sebastian, great context. Thank you so much. Now, uh, one uh, place where they're not hanging around to take action is Hong Kong. The authorities there announcing a raft of stimulus measures to the tune of some $15 billion, in fact, including cash giveaways. Christy Lustat is in Hong Kong and joins us on this. Christy, great to have you with us as always. What's the reception been? You can talk us through some of these measures, but what's the reception been too to the announcements today? Yeah, the big cash handouts that you mentioned, Julia, that may have lifted some spirits, but it failed to lift the markets during this very difficult time for Hong Kong. This major global financial city has been struggling through those anti-government protests, the trade war, now the outbreak. So earlier today, the Hong Kong government announced this dramatic economic relief package worth some $15.4 billion. The Hong Kong financial secretary, Paul Chan, says that this relief will go towards low-income households, hospitals, as well as training in health care. Now, he also announced that big cash handout. Every Hong Kong permanent resident above the age of 18 will receive 10,000 Hong Kong dollars or nearly 1,300 U.S. in cash. That's a bid to help stir local consumption and spending. Now, the virus here has caused widespread fear, also spurring the panic buying of items like face masks, food, and even necessities like toilet paper. There are now, as of this hour, 89 confirmed deaths, I'm uh, sorry, confirmed cases and two deaths here in Hong Kong. Schools have been closed for over a month now. They will not reopen until April the 20th at the earliest. We know the residents are hunkering down. They're staying away from shopping centers, staying away from restaurants. And with that fall in consumption, along with tourism, the Hong Kong economy, as you can imagine, is getting hammered. Julia. Yeah, the problem with giving cash is that to people even spend it, would vouchers have been better? But um, we'll see how it plays out. Christy, great to have you with us. Christy loosed out there. All right, let's uh, move on to our next driver. The stakes couldn't be higher in the race for the White House. Voters in South Carolina will choose their Democratic candidate for president this Saturday. Then it's Super Tuesday next week when 14 states will vote. The frontrunner Bernie Sanders had a bullseye on his back. He took the brunt of the attacks from Democratic rivals in Tuesday night's debate. If you think the last four years has been chaotic, divisive, toxic, exhausting. Imagine spending the better part of 2020 with Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump. I am scared. If we cannot pull this party together, if we go to one of those extremes, we take a terrible risk of re-electing Donald Trump. If we spend the next four months okay. tearing our party apart, we're going to watch Donald Trump spend the next four years tearing our country apart. Look. CNN's Jessica Dean joins us now. I have to say that was some of the less shouty moments where they were all talking over each other and at each other rather than seemingly at the voters, Jessica. But what are your highlights here and who do you think came out on top most importantly? I think, Julia, you make a very good point, which is uh, the, the takeaway from this was there was just there was a lot of yelling. There was a lot of the circular firing squad, a lot of talking over each other. Look, it's South Carolina, the last of the early states, a lot on the line for these candidates as we head into Saturday's primary here. And then, of course, Super Tuesday, where a number of states are going to vote with a lot of delegates up for grabs. And this was really the last chance for them to all be on that stage together before those two things happen and really draw those contrasts out. So for Bernie Sanders, the 
front runner. The challenge was to make sure he could handle all the incoming. And the, the question was, how could he do that? Uh, you saw him get agitated at times, You, but other times you saw him really reiterate his points. He's very consistent on his message and is always able to come back to those talking points that he has. Uh, the challenge for everybody else was to see if they could stop or even slow Bernie Sanders' momentum. And you saw Joe Biden uh, have a really a stronger debate performance than we have seen in the past. He is the favorite here in South Carolina, although polls have shown Bernie Sanders creeping up on him now within striking distance here in South Carolina. But this has been Joe Biden's to lose South Carolina. This has been his firewall. So he is under a tremendous amount of pressure to perform here and to perform well. And so, Julia, for last night, that, that was what he was hoping to do. Does any of it move the needle? Does any of it matter? We're going to find out on Saturday and then into next Tuesday. Julia. Yeah, palpable sense of emergency, I think, from all of the uh, players yeah. here, the candidates. Jessica Dean, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right, a bigger surprise from the magical kingdom. Bob Iger stepping down as the Disney CEO. The head of the theme parks now is going to be taking the reins. Bob Chapak, Frank Pelota joins us now. Frank, I have to say this was the most delayed departure in the history of, of US companies, it seems. And yet, even with that, yesterday felt like a surprise. Do you agree with that? And what do we know about the man who's set to take over? Yeah, it was a complete surprise, but it, it shouldn't be because Iger has tried to retire multiple times over the last couple of years, and he hasn't been able to stick the uh, exit. This looks like he's actually on his way out, but at the same time, he's not really going anywhere yet. He's gonna stay on as an executive, uh, executive president, as you said, and focus on the creative side of the company. What does that mean? Well, it means that Bob Chapek, who used to run the parks and resorts unit, it's kind of like the business side of the company, and Iger is going to focus more on the creative side of the company. And this can kind of work for Disney more so than other companies because it kind of harkens back to their early history when Roy Disney and Walt Disney, the brothers, were the business and creative side of the founding of Disney itself. So in terms of reporting lines, to your point then, actually, Bob Chapek still going to be reporting into Bob Iger. Bob Iger is still going to be executive chairman until 2021. And given the business that's been built here and the sort of three-pronged approach that they're doing, particularly with things like Disney Plus, um, not that much is going to change, surely, at least in the short term, in terms of the direction of this business. I don't see much changing. Even the name of the new CEO is not changing. It's still another Bob. <laughs> Like, it's, it's, it seems like a huge, huge story. Yeah, it seems like a huge, huge story. But in reality, it's kind of just, you know, Iger saying, I'm ready to go at the end of 2021. And here's who's going to basically run this company in my stead. It's a classic Disney story. It seems really, really big. But when you kind of dig into it, it seems like nothing has really changed at all. But it makes sense for Iger. It just seems really big because of look on that screen right there. All of the things that Iger has done. He's one of the most important people in the history of the Disney company behind probably only Walt himself. There would be no time where he would leave where it would not be surprising from bed knobs and broomsticks bobbing along bobbing along in terms of not exactly the business, my favorite course, but Avenue. hey I, I liked it there we go frank pelota thank you so much for that quickly moving on let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world Indian 
Prime Minister Narendra Modi is appealing for calm after days of clashes over a controversial citizenship law. At least 24 people, including a police officer, have been killed in rioting between supporters and opponents of the law. The act fast-tracks citizens from non-Muslim asylum seekers from three neighboring countries. Egypt, meanwhile, is observing three days of mourning for former President Hosni Mubarak. A military funeral was held in Cairo a day after Mubarak died at the age of 91. He ruled Egypt for nearly three decades, only to be forced to resign amid the Arab Spring protests in 2011. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. Of course, we're going to be watching for the market open. We are counting down, expected to see gains. But as we mentioned, volatility remains the name of the game here. We've got that covered for you. And of course, as you were hearing there, the end of a fairy tale. Bob Iger handing over the keys to the magical kingdom. But is it infinity and beyond for the new Disney CEO? And watch this space. Losses for Virgin Galactic, even as Wall Street predicts, a stellar future. Stay with CNN. More to come. First move live from the New York Stock Exchange. We're counting down to the market open this morning. It's been pretty volatile pre-market, I can tell you, here on Wall Street. We've been all over the place, up and down pre-market. We're currently seeing a higher open to the trading session. But, you know, a word of warning, we did, if you remember, this time yesterday, predict a stronger open for the market. And then the selling began. So we'll take it very cautiously. But at this stage, we are looking to see a bit of a bounce back after yesterday's 3% drop. All the major averages are in negative territory now for the year, currently trading, in fact, at 12-week lows. To Asia now, where the operator of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange reported a rise in profits, record revenues, despite the political and economic turmoil in the territory. Now the company warns that the coronavirus outbreak will bring fresh uncertainty. Charles Lee is the CEO of Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing and joins us now. Charles, fantastic to have you on the show and to speak to you once again. You know, as I was looking through your numbers, resilient actually was the, the word that came to mind, despite, as you pointed out, a very challenging backdrop here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, you cannot expect or hope for anything better uh, despite the broader, uh, you know, very, very dismal part of the market, you know, we've we, we gone through a lot of difficulties and challenges last year, you know, with the protest first and now with the virus. But I think the, the market has shown that, um, you know, Hong Kong is resilient. Hong Kong is as strong as ever. You know, we've been there, you know, being to SARS, we've been to returns of sovereignty, we've been to a lot of, uh, uh, you know, uh, other channel financial crisis in 97. And uh, I really don't, I, I think uh, this city, ultimately, we're going to come out strong. And um, But right now, it's really uncertainty. We don't know how this whole virus is ultimately going to end. The big question is how far it's going to go, how fast it's going to spread, how long it's going to take to, to get to a natural end, or whether there is going to be a natural end. And if we do get there, What's the cost? What's the human cost? What's the cost to the economy? What's the cost to global supply chain? A lot of those big questions that uh, are yet to be answered. So it is those uncertainty that is driving, you know, the current market volatilities. 
at the, the beating heart of the business community there in Hong Kong, whether it's looking at some of the measures that the government took this morning to try and support businesses and, of course, consumers too, or beyond just some of the broader challenges. I mean, we were talking in, in you and I in Davos about the, the trade tensions, the, the protests in particular. Do you think that the business community feels comfortable managing the various different risks or is more support needed? Yeah, I mean, clearly the Hong Kong local economy, the local society, the community, community uh, are going through a lot of uh, challenges you know, in the last 12 months. And uh, a lot of this is going to be resulting in slower economic growth, you know, uh, you know significant uh, challenges in the property sector, in the retail sector. But sometimes people do not uh, fully appreciate that the Hong Kong local economy is a small economy. It's, uh, uh, you know, 7 million people, 1,000 square kilometers. And our GDP, uh, you know, for every dollar of GDP, ever out the market have a dollar of the market cap of the company listed in that market. But in Hong Kong, you know, and the GDP is $1, but the market cap listed on our exchange is $13, $14. So it's a, wow. it's a, it's a, it's a small market. It's a small economy supporting a very large market. The large market is largely a China underlying global capital and increasingly global underlying and Chinese capital. So that $14, 13 of which really have very little to do with the Hong Kong local economy. And uh, obviously what happens in Hong Kong matters, but the market largely electronic, largely operating on its own without a lot of the physical uh, you know, in, in activities necessary anymore, is a very, very strong global market. The whole idea is to connecting China with the global, and obviously the liquidity and volatilities on both markets tend to manifest itself big time in Hong Kong. But that's why we are resilient, and that's why we have to be resilient. And that's how this particular uh, uh, results uh, for our 2019 you know, shows that even in that environment, we are able to achieve record revenue and record profit. You did see a significant drop in trading, which traditionally would be the backstone of, of your revenue creation. Can I ask what you're seeing, given the current volatility that we're seeing in the markets, not just in terms of the, the impact on trading, but also the conversations that you're having with potential IPO customers too? Are there conditions for them even considering coming to market tightening up here as a result of perhaps the economic impact of, of the coronavirus? Can you just give us a sense yeah, I, of what you're seeing? Yeah, Yeah, I, I think the IPO market last year, you know, we are global number one in IPO fund raised, and that's seven out of 11 of the last, uh, you know, uh, seven years out of the 11 years, you know, we've been number one. And uh, I think this year, um, you know, again, the first and in January, we had 22 IPOs and 21 IPOs. Um, the pipeline is very strong. There are a large number of Chinese uh, companies, technology companies that are listed in New York are considering at least moving back to do a due, uh, due list, uh, secondary listing or even due a primary listing. Those are coming. They definitely come. But I think right now the actual offering the actual market operation, uh, you know, uh, there are no issues, but the marketing, the physical traveling, and the roadshow arrangement sometimes becoming a challenge. So I think for the first uh, quarter, we're probably going to see a dimming activity. But broadly speaking, our IPO 
typically the bulk happens the second half, and you know due to accounting um, peculiarities, and very few usually doing the first quarter anyway. So I don't really think it's it's just at worst it would just switch into a later timetable into the fall. Let's uh, hope we move through this crisis as uh, swiftly as we can. Charles, fantastic to have you on. Great to chat to you. Charles Lee there, the CEO of Hong Kong Exchanges. The market opens next. Thank you. Stay with us. first move here at the New York Stock Exchange and the opening bell for the third time this week. And we do see a higher open for U.S. stock markets. Let's call it consolidation, at least at this moment, after one of the worst two-day drops for U.S. stocks in around four years. We saw the down, the S&P falling some 3% yesterday. We've actually not had a session that ended in the green in a week at this stage. So I'm very cautious about dictating... Uh, the mode of play throughout this session at this moment, but right now we are in the green. What we're also seeing is a bit of consolidation going on in the bond markets too. Ten-year yields at this moment are a touch firmer. They hit record lows in the previous session, a warning there perhaps about the growth risks. In the meantime, President Trump has announced that he will hold a press conference on the coronavirus outbreak after the market closed today, with officials from the Center for Disease Control in attendance too. Their warning yesterday, seemingly creating some jitters in the market as well about the need to prepare here in the United States for greater outbreaks. So that certainly could play into market sentiment today too. Let's get some context. Jim Keenan joins us now. He's Chief Investment Officer and the Global Head of Credit at BlackRock. Jim, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Your sense right now of what we're seeing across global assets. Yeah, I mean, obviously, as we came into the year, there was a, a pretty strong view on what the expectations were of growth, uh, global growth, U.S. growth, and what that meant for kind of corporate earnings. Uh, the market's really quickly adjusting. Obviously, uh, there's a lot of unknowns with regards to the virus itself and how that filters into what that means for growth. And so that's very quickly getting repriced in asset prices because the range of outcomes is, is pretty broad, right? We're still trying to figure out uh, what the true mortality rate is, even if it is low, this is obviously something that is, uh, is very contagious. You've seen a very quick escalation in Korea and Italy. Uh, and then obviously there's questions with regards to is this seasonal? Uh, you know, is there immunity associated with this? Uh, you know, if you, can you get it more than multiple times? So all these things are driving into questions, not just where we were maybe a month ago, which is what does it mean for the supply chain? Because it was more concentrated in China. But now the markets are trying to adjust as if this is to roll over the next several months and quarters through Europe and through the United States. What does that ultimately mean from an economic standpoint uh, and therefore from a earnings or cash flow standpoint for, for stocks or credit? You know, it's a, it's a very worrying thing. There's a, a humanitarian health crisis here that we have to worry about. But at the same time, and I do think this is an important point, the message, particularly from European health authorities, has been don't panic. Even the White House saying it, while the CDC is saying we need to prepare here. Is what we're seeing in the markets, in your mind, a healthy adjustment reflecting the sheer degree of uncertainty that you mentioned versus some that have suggested we're seeing panic? 
Yeah, I would say obviously this is an unhealthy event, right? I mean, this is a virus that's going around that's have, impacting a lot of families um, and people around the world. So that obviously is not a healthy component about it. I would say the markets have to adjust in the sense of the range of outcomes are still uncertain, right? And so uh, the potential that this gets worse, the potential that the economic impact is going to get worse has to get priced into assets. And, you know, that is a very different picture than where we were a month ago or even a week ago as you started to see this escalate in regions like Korea and Italy. Um, so the, the, the risks are still unknown. I think assets or the equity markets or rate markets around the world are adjusting at a very quick pace because people, investors were positioned for one outcome and now we very quickly have to have an uncertainty associated to that. So I think the markets have been rational with regards to uh, the repricing of, of uh, earnings expectations or multiples uh, in the equity market as well as spreads in the rate market. The question is, is how ultimately is this going to play out over the next couple quarters? We know that the first quarter, the data is going to be weak in Asia. We know that is ultimately filtering into other parts of the world uh, when it comes to the supply chain. But if this gets more broad, uh, the impact that this has, not just because of the Chinese consumer or the Chinese supply chain and, and the size of the Chinese economy, but ultimately what that means as it goes, because the response mechanism to the coronavirus is very different than anything else. Even if it has a low mortality rate with the data that we've seen today, it is very much slowing down economies and keeping people at home and being very cautious because of the high level of contagion. And that can and will have an economic impact, uh, but we just don't know how much at this point. A great point. Um, to your point as well, we have seen interest rates adjusting lower. I mean, the U.S. market investors here anticipating two quarter point cuts from the Federal Reserve now this year. Is that investors being a little bit too hopeful about potential support from central banks like the Federal Reserve going forward? And is the risk higher that they overreact perhaps rather than underreact to provide support? Yeah, I think, and there's two questions around it. I think, you know, before the virus, I would have, and I did say that, I think that growth was going to be pretty stable and pretty strong this year because for the last 12 months, you've actually seen a lot of, of easing or financial support from central banks around the world, including the Fed. And I think that was leading into stability uh, and stabilization of data or, or growth data in the United States. With regards to the virus, uh, obviously, there's a question of, of the impact that we just talked about. If the Fed cuts, I think you know, the Fed is going to help. And I, as I think the fiscal government will help if the, the economy starts to get weaker. But the transmission mechanism might be a little bit different. Even if you cut rates uh, with regards to the impact or uh, the, what is going on with the virus or how businesses and people and households are dealing with the virus, I'm not sure that rate cuts have any immediate impact with regards to stimulating economic right. activity. Um, so I do think you'll see support, but I don't necessarily think that will mean the data. I, this, I think, is going to have an impact certainly to the first half of this year with growth. How long it lasts and how much it affects 2020 growth is still, I think, an un unknown. With regards to the structure of the market, though, long term, I think ultimately this is something that we do start to see stabilization of data. And I think this is the virus in itself is creating some cyclicality of data and pulling forward some, I would say, risk to growth in 2020. Uh, but I don't think this is long lasting or, or structural change. Jim, you are.
answered my final question there already in your answer. I'm going to thank you very much. Great to have you with us, as always, to get your insight and wisdom. Jim Keenan there from BlackRock. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But coming up, a new king of the castle, the magical one, of course, Bob Iger stepping down as CEO of Disney. The sudden leadership shake-up in that empire. But what does it really mean? That's next. Under pressure today, the space tourism startup posting a loss of $73 million for the fourth quarter and $211 million for 2019. It can't take paying customers into space, of course, until it finishes dealing with regulators. This is the first earnings report since going public last year. Now, despite today's slide, Virgin Galactic shares have soared almost 200% in the last two months. Matt Egan joins us now on this story. So, Matt, a little bit of cautiousness with a wider loss here, but the biggest story is the stratospheric rise that we've seen in the share price since that IPO. Well, Julia, this stock is coming back to earth uh, just a little bit after what was really a meteoric rise. And what I found most striking from this first earnings report since Virgin went public isn't necessarily that they lost money. Uh, we definitely expected that. I was really struck by the revenue. They only generated $529,000 in revenue last quarter. Now, usually, Julia, you and I are not talking about companies that only generate a few million dollars in revenue, let alone a few hundred thousand dollars in revenue, but here we are. And that's because Virgin has really become the latest plaything on Wall Street. Uh, just like uh, the cannabis company Tilray, Beyond Meat, and more recently Tesla, uh, Virgin has just become this hotbed for speculation. And that's because just like those other companies, Virgin is a pure play. If you're excited about commercial space flight, there's really nowhere else to put your money other than Virgin. Yes, Jeff Bezos is, has a Blue Origin and Elon Musk has uh, SpaceX, but those companies are not public yet. And that's why we've seen this 200% increase um, in Virgin. Now, clearly, this is not a stock that is trading on fundamentals. It's really all about hype and some obscure metrics uh, like registrations of interest. Virgin said that that last category has more than doubled during the last quarter. Um, and crucially, Virgin is making some progress on the regulatory front that you mentioned, Julia. They said that they have cleared 20 of 29 testing milestones that are required to get the green light from the FAA to approve commercial flights. But let's watch this stock pretty closely because recent history shows that when you have ultra profitable companies like Apple and Google getting knocked around in the stock market because of turmoil, speculative ones like Virgin have the potential to fall even further. I was actually going to point out the fact that it's bucked the broader trend of the pressure that we've seen across markets. It's been a sort of relative safe haven, and I say that really loosely. Um, flights still cost $250,000, though, so I'm still saving my pennies. Matt Egan, great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. All right, let's uh, look at some of our other big movers today. A day after a 28% surge, shares of Moderna are jumping again at this moment after the biotech company said its coronavirus vaccine is ready for testing. As you can see, yeah, up 26% almost in the session so far. Disney, meanwhile, down just two-tenths of 1% as Bob Iger steps down as CEO. Bob Chapek, the head of Disney theme parks, will replace Iger immediately. They spoke about their new roles shortly after that surprise announcement. 
in terms of you know, confusion, we're not really concerned about that. Bob is going to be running the company and, and running the day-to-day -day businesses. As I said earlier, uh, all of my direct reports shift to him. I have one direct report, and, and that's Bob. Uh, we'll be focusing on the creative, but any of the big creative decisions that have to be made, I fully intend for Bob to be at my side. It's, it's certainly a privilege to have Bob, you know, still available and there for guidance. Uh, I've had a front row seat to Bob Iger's magic at Walt Disney now for 15 years. And to be able to extend that for the next year and a half or so while I make the transition into this new role is just a luxury that, frankly, I, I couldn't ask for more. Peter Amobi joins us now. He's media and entertainment analyst at CFRA Research. Great to have you with us on the show once again. I mean, this was a telegraphed, postponed step down that's been coming and coming and coming, but it did feel like a shock coming yesterday. What are your views? Indeed, Julia, I think this one came as a surprise uh, to us, much like a lot of others in the investment community. Uh, with that being said, I think, as you alluded to, it's been you know, telegraphed, uh, you know, for, for quite some time. Uh, we were a little bit surprised as to the choice of uh, Bob Chapek over Kevin Meyer, who runs a direct-to-consumer business. Uh, but with that being said, I think there's something to be said about the uh, resolution of the uh, management succession question, um, you know, at Disney World, at the, at the Walt Disney Company, which, um, as, as you know, over the, the last several years can be um, quite dramatic at times. Uh, but I think looking forward, we, we think uh, Bob Chapek is uh, going to continue executing on the core strategy, which, um, you know, frankly, having Bob Iger take him under his wings for the next two years uh, should help to ease any potential concerns that investors might have. Yeah, I agree with you on the reporting lines. It still feels like Bob Iger, given that, that Bob Chapek is going to be his direct report, is still very much going to be a front and center in terms of control. But to your point, why, why do you think they chose Bob Chapek? Because a lot of people initially came out and said, surely it would, have been made, it would have made sense to have someone with far more experience of technologies of the future, the streaming, somebody that had a firm control over Disney Plus here. Why do you think they made this decision? I think ultimately, I think it came down to, you know, who was going to have maybe this steeper learning curve. And while, while um, Bob Chapek still faces some steep learning curve in the television and streaming, if you look at Kevin Meyer, I think uh, the, the, his exposure to the core, uh, you know, creative side has been fairly limited, the, the television and the, the theme parks, etc. So ultimately, I think, um, you know, I think this is a choice that we can live with. Uh, because I think, uh, as I said, having Bob Iger uh, kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, take um, him under the ropes, uh, Chapek, that should help to ease the transition. Uh, Disney is a, a very sprawling company. Uh, Bob Iger will always have very b big shoes to fill. So it was always going to be difficult to find someone who was going to step in uh, from day one and hit the ground running, whether internally or externally. I think investors understand that. Uh, so that's why I think, um, you know, Kevin, uh, sorry, uh, Bob Chapek is someone that can, uh, you know, handle that role. We were on a call last night, and I think my sense is that he's going to basically reinforce the core tenets of Disney strategy, uh, which Bob Iger has been executing on for the last 15 years. Were you comforted that there wasn't any health reasons, any anything that didn't have something specifically to do with the business and just making a decision at a given moment in time for Disney and allowing this, to your point, two-year two period where Bob Iger's still there and can still be overseeing the new CEO? 
You're not worried about any anything else as far as Bob Iger is concerned? Well, I have to tell you, um, we were also trying to read the tea leaves as to why now. I think that's what the, your question is getting to, why yes. now? And frankly, we don't have a, a great answer to, to that, um, especially in the light of uh, Bob Iger having delayed his retirement multiple times in the past. Uh, you know, but ultimately, um, I'm quite comfortable with, with the fact that this is as good a time to do it as uh, any other. Uh, and there's been, of course, theories uh, as to why they chose this moment, um, whether there could be any signals or potential, you know, um, you know, undisclosed things or changes that may be in the around the corner. But um, it's really hard for us to uh, think about that, and especially knowing that they still got to uh, a lot of work to do in integrating Fox assets and pivot into this new direct-to-consumer strategy. Uh, all of that, I think, as Bob himself explained uh, very clearly on the call last night, he wants to focus a lot more on the creative aspects of the company, uh, while at the same time, um, Bob Chepe can begin to learn uh, the ropes in the other areas. So this is something that we take at face value, frankly. Yeah, I think the answer, the short answer to that was why now, why not, quite frankly. Um, you have a buy call, a $160 12-month price target. Just very quickly, do you think, given the structure of this monster business now that's been built under Bob Iger, the ship sails the same way as it would have done if Bob Iger was the CEO? They will follow the path and work on things like integration, and actually very little will change in the short term, and that's probably a good thing. Well, the short answer is yes. Uh, having Bob Iger there in the executive chairman role, still heavily involved in the day-to-day -day operations, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said about that. Uh, that being said, there's still broader concerns about, uh, we were just talking about a coronavirus and how that imp impacts Disney uh, and a whole lot of other companies. So these are uh, kind of the near-term uh, issues that they have to navigate. And having uh, Bob Chepek already dealing with that issue, um, I think uh, will really help to ease that transition to the extent that they can control it. Yeah, integration, huge growth businesses. There's a lot of challenges to come. Tuna, great to have you with us. Tuna and Moby there. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a break again here on First Move. But coming up, part debate, part, well, shouting match. U.S. Democratic rivals clashing ahead of the Super Tuesday vote. We'll look at why the stakes are now that much higher in the race for the White House. Stay with us. first move at the New York Stock Exchange. I can tell you we're seeing some pretty nice gains in early trading. All the major averages are higher by around 1%, as you can see, clawing back some of the steep 3% losses that we've seen over the past two sessions. It is early days, I will make that comment. But what we are seeing is widely held FANG stocks all rallying. Apple is higher after falling into correction territory, i.e. down 10% or more from recent highs earlier this week. Other FANG names have been close to falling into that 10% correction territory too. We've got Netflix higher by some 3.3% as well, as you can see the outperformer there. All right, here's a look at today's boardroom brief. Going solo, the co-CEO of Salesforce, Keith Block, is stepping down. He leaves Mark Benioff to be the sole CEO of the business software company. Block was seen as a potential successor to Benioff, and the news sent shares lower, as you can see, by some 2%. 
The chairman of Bayer stepping down, saying the company is making good progress towards settling a cascade of lawsuits. The German chemicals maker is battling claims that its weed killer Roundup causes cancer. Wenning was one of the architects of Bayer's $63 billion purchase of Monsanto, which makes Roundup. Panasonic says it's ending its solar cell production venture with U.S. electric car maker Tesla. Instead, it wants to focus on sales of its own solar panels in the U.S. market. The Japanese electronics maker says it will make electric vehicle batteries with Tesla still. And a quick programming note now. Be sure to tune in to CNN over the coming hours. The Democratic Town Halls with Michael Bloomberg, Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren are live from South Carolina starting at 8 a.m. in Hong Kong midnight in the UK and 7 p.m. in New York, right here on CNN. And no surprise, there was plenty of reaction to Tuesday night's Democratic debates too, but I do think talk show host Stephen Colbert may have summed it up best. Watch this. Seven candidates, five moderators, two hours, and one powerful message for America. And I can't allow, I can't allow this to stand because it's just not true. Another Bernie, let, let me respond to this. Look, first of all, let me go. It's going to be tough to fit on a bumper sticker. Hopefully voters understood better than perhaps I did. All right, that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chesley. You can listen to our podcast, cnn.com slash podcast. But for now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.